0: Hi, I'm Lizzie
1: and I'm Danny for now
0: and welcome to Sex Intersectional. I can't again can't say weekly podcast anymore but it's a podcast about sexual health among all identities and intersections. Danny for now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Why is it for now?
1: Um, I am in the process of thinking about which name I want to use and which name I want to go by. So it's Danny for now. Um, it's very trans, very queer. Things are always changing so embracing that change.
0: Any particular names that have come to the forefront of your thinking?
1: Honestly, right now, I don't have anything that's like in the running, I would say. I just know that I want to change it, and um, that's where I'm at right now.
0: Well, congrats on making that decision, and good luck on your journey for finding a new name. So, Danny, for now, how do we know each other?
1: Um, Wow, it's been a minute.
0: I think it's been almost two years. Yeah, (laughs) but we've met in group therapy, right? (laughs) Again, very queer, very very changing (laughs) story of our lives. But yeah, we met in group therapy and there've been a few people we've stayed in touch with because what what else to bring you closer but talking about shared trauma? (laughs)
1: Definitely, 100%. And that's very queer too. (laughs)
0: If you can't tell, we have a goal here of being very queer. <laughs> and Danny for now is like going back, laughing. You can laugh I out loud; it's okay. I'm
1: currently wearing um, glow-in-the-dark spiral gauge earrings, so that's that's a look.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Again, very queer. <laughs> All right, we are obsessed with this topic for now. But um, why don't you introduce yourself, Danny for now? Like, uh, what what brought you here? What are your pronouns? And like, what What
1: are we here to talk about? Yeah, um, like I said, I'm Danny for now, for the time being. Um, I use they, them pronouns. What brought me here, I guess what we're talking about is essentially um, what I do in my work life day to day, um, and that revolves around getting people access to care. Um, and essentially like working through the whole puzzle that is healthcare.
0: (laughs) Which bless your heart. And I don't mean that in the sarcastic, stereotypical Southern way, (laughs) seriously, bless your heart because our healthcare system is fragmented bullshit and which we've talked about many times on this podcast, but, um, what you mentioned, you help people get the care they need. Um, what does, does your clientele, like any particular group or like what 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 kind of clientele do you have
1: yeah so i mean particularly i would say like 80 percent um or more of the people i see on a regular basis are either hiv positive or in the process of you know starting prep and um, staying on it if they already are Um, there are a handful of people that you know are negative and um, are not at all interested in prep and like don't really have that on their radar but again like that's a pretty small minority
0: all right and for our listeners who haven't listened to this podcast before what is prep
1: oh prep yeah pre-exposure prophylactic
0: and what does that do
1: So essentially, um, what it is, is it helps people um, build a sort of like resistance um, and essentially like protects them, quote unquote, um, against um, infecting HIV.
0: Okay. So it's one of foundational ways to prevent HIV. Um, Is it available, currently available to anyone who wants it?
1: I mean, theoretically, it should be. Um, the, I guess like the healthcare part of it is that, you know, like it is generally like limited to people who already have health insurance and because, you know, like I'm sure people know that like HIV medication is ridiculously expensive, Mm -hmm. um, even with insurance, um, and therefore PrEP, um, which is manufactured by like similar HIV, Uh, medication companies is also um ridiculously expensive um so you know like part of what i do is helping people who don't have insurance get connected to you know a plan that you know works for them and um again two programs that you know like fill in for the costs associated um i remember i had someone who came in um and, you know, for whatever reason, like their benefits lapsed and they were, you know, going in to pick up their prep and, you know, lo and behold, called the pharmacy. and They're like, yeah, I mean, like they can pick it up. It's just going to be like two thousand dollars. And that's.
0: And they assumed that they would be able to pay two grand. <laughs> oh, no, they were definitely
1: <laughs> saying. Like, they're like. Or, yeah. Like which which program are we setting up for today? Because like no one, no one. That I know of is able to afford $2,000 every single month.
0: That's the market price for, I assume, Truvada, the uh, main brand. For yeah, prep. yeah, Truvada Prep. Mm-hmm. For like for what, a month's worth of medication? 30 days, correct. What the shit? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, it's insane. But the other thing, I guess, about American healthcare system is that no one expects you to pay that and no one is able to pay that. Um so like the manufacturer Gilead is well aware that you know even with insurance there are very high copays so they have what are called copay cards mm-hmm. which reduce the cost down to zero okay. um for a full year at least um and they actually do provide what are called like emergency 30-day packs okay so it'll be just like billing codes that we you know like call into the pharmacy and they're able to provide that, you know, 30 day starter pack usually, um, or sometimes it'll be like, you know, like that in between, you know, like emergency coverage um, so that the person is able to stay on their medication.
0: All right. And so um, you mentioned Gilead and so, and that you help people who don't have insurance to get linked to programs to help fund PrEP. So like, what are some reasons, I'm like, asking what are some reasons they wouldn't have insurance? Because- Compared to many states, D.C. does have a pretty expansive Medicaid program. Um, But what are some barriers to getting for your clients getting Medicaid or just getting access to PrEP to begin with?
1: Oh, wow. So um, I would say in D.C., D.C. proper, there is actually a 97 percent coverage rate, Mm -hmm. which means that um, there's only three percent of people um, in D.C. who do not have um, health insurance coverage which is incredibly high. It's the second highest in like all the United States. Um, the first being, I believe, Michigan, which started like the whole ACA, American um, Health Care Act. So
0: Affordable Care
1: Act? Affordable Care Act. Yeah.
0: You and I have discussed before that just having health insurance doesn't mean you have adequate coverage. So are, do you, are your clients sometimes in that in-between where they make too much to... Um, they have too high income to qualify for Medicaid, but don't make enough to buy marketplace plans or Medicaid's not covering this part or their policies not covering this part. Like, where do your clientele fall?
1: Yeah. So um, there are, you know, like quite a few people who are, you know, like new to D.C. Um, and therefore have to apply for, you know, D.C. Medicaid um, because Medicaid is administered by each state. Right. Um and so that's you know like a certain subset of people. There's also a certain subset of people who you know like recently like lost their jobs, and therefore you know like no longer have employer-sponsored coverage. Um, so they would have to again do an application. Um, other people um, who are on the opposite side who just got a job, um, but a lot of people have jobs through contractors. Which do not provide um, any sort of health coverage, um, and so again they are without coverage. And um, depending on you know like how much their income is and what their household size is, they might not be eligible for DC Medicaid.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so this means that they would have to um, you know like look for a plan usually off of the you know like DC marketplace um and those plans they do offer what are called tax credits so essentially like a like reduced price every month so you know like if someone's premium you know like um let's say for like a 30 year old person who you know like is trying to access prep and otherwise doesn't have like other, you know, like health concerns that they would be, you know, like going to the doctor frequently for, mm-hmm. um, you know, like their plan might be depending on like what kind of coverage they want. Like the low end is usually like two, three hundred ish per month. Per month. This is a month. That's a low month. end. That's usually. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. That I tend to get those looks a lot. <laughs> the look that Lizzie is giving me is um, confusion perplexed also like why just why (laughs) um yeah so that that's actually incredibly common and then I think the highest for again like someone who's like in their 30s would be like seven to eight hundred dollars every single month um
0: for how good of coverage
1: so yeah that is the other thing because the coverage they rank it by um you know, like, the Olympics, we have, like, medal levels, so it's medal level. That's
0: right. I forgot about that back so, when I bu- bought marketplace plans when I was in Texas, when I just aged. out of my parents' insurance. Turns out it was, it was like, bronze level, and when I uh, ran to, like, an emergency situation, like had to go to the ER, it provided $50 towards my total of, like, two grand cost. <laughs> so I was paying, like... A 150 a month just to get like fifty dollars towards an ER bill. <laughs> uh, but sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no and
1: and that's that's the other thing too is like so because they are you know like ranked by metal level, so like the bronze plan like you experience um usually has quote unquote a lower monthly premium but then a higher deductible. So you know, like I had someone who said they had like a seven thousand dollar annual deductible. Fuck. <laughs> this is for an individual.
0: Fuck.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. The, the other thing too is you know like again like with these you know bronze plans, um, and bronze is like at the at the lower end. Uh, for those of you who can't see my little hand gestures, <laughs> um. You know, they would have like higher, higher copays as well. So you have the, you know, like $150, $200 monthly cost in addition to, you know, like the copays and, um, you know, just like whatever like out of pocket costs that is not covered until you reach that ridiculous like $7,000 annual deductible again for one person.
0: How many actually reach that deductible?
1: I haven't met anyone that has, to be honest.
0: So for, so for client clients that are like had to resort to these like marketplace plans, like what coverage can they get? Like, if, like so let's say if they're going for prep or if they're being treated for HIV, like how much do these plans actually cover?
1: So again, yeah, that depends on the metal level. Um, And I will say it is incredibly different, that distinction of, um, being HIV positive and not, um, because, um, once you reach like the silver medal, um, or higher, so the, the four are bronze, silver, gold, and then platinum. Platinum. Yeah. So those are the four, um, the nice thing about the Platinum plans is that those ones have $0 deductible. Um, And those tend to be the ones that have like $800 monthly premiums. Um, The thing is, um, once you apply for these tax credits, which are, you know, like reduced off of the monthly premium amount. So depending essentially like on the person's household income, so like, how close they are to that, you know, like Medicaid cutoff limit, they will receive more or less um, tax credits. So, okay. you know, let's say you're someone who is just barely over the income limit for D.C. Medicaid. You would essentially receive the most or a lot of tax credits every month so that this plan would be, quote unquote, affordable. Um Now, if you are someone who is positive and you select a plan that is, um, you know, silver, gold or platinum, um, there is a program and this is like available in every state um, and also Puerto Rico and Guam. So it's called ADAP, the AIDS Drug Assistance Program. Mm -hmm. And essentially what it is, is it helps people who are HIV positive. To continue receiving care um, and get access to their medications.
0: Okay. And so that's only if their silver plan are above. Mm-hmm. So, what if they're, it, it was someone's living with HIV and they can only afford a bronze plan?
1: So, um, part of the what ADAP pays for is the monthly premium. Okay. So, essentially, what they would want is that the person, you know, like signs up for a plan and Um, receives, you know, takes 100% of the tax credits that they're eligible for. Um, So I guess we could like run through an example. I don't know if that would be helpful. I
0: guess as long as like no names are given.
1: (laughs) So let's say, um, you know, someone comes in and they are um, like a couple thousand dollars over the annual Medicaid limit in D.C. um, And they apply for tax credits. And these tax credits help reduce the cost down of their monthly premium from like $800 a month down to $500 a month. And this would be for the Platinum plan, which has like $0 deductible um, and essentially like all the coverage, paid for okay. everything, all the time, best plan, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What ADAP pays for is the remaining $500 a month.
0: Okay. Because I was about to say, 500 is still substantial.
1: Yeah. So um, that's something that, you know, like, I usually recommend to people who are HIV positive Mm -hmm. and are, you know, like receiving care, because the other part of ADAP is that um, it has to be renewed every six months. So
0: every six months. Why? Or do you know why? Um,
1: I would essentially say bureaucracy. But um, I think the logic is that they want to make sure that this person is still receiving care mm-hmm. and is still, you know, like getting their labs done and picking up medication. So just sort of like them ensuring that they're paying for someone who is actually receiving these benefits.
0: Okay. And so is it easy
1: to renew? It depends. <laughs> Fuck. I mean, like, the requirements are the same for everybody, but again, it is important to note that, you know, the requirement of, you know, proving your residence, so where you live. Right. You know, providing a DC address Mm -hmm. and providing your, you know, like, monthly or annual income might be easier for certain people and a lot harder for
0: others. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, it's... Dare I say sounds a bit like of a classist requirement. <laughs> Danny for now is nodding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will
1: say that with people who have, you know, a lot of difficulty proving where they live because that might change um day to day, month to month, mm-hmm. week to mm-hmm. week. Um, you know, it's it's really hard to even get someone to sign what's called the proof of DC residency form. Essentially, this form would be signed by someone who can verify that this person lives at that address (sighs) and would have to be submitted along with, you know, the person who's signing with their residence verification. So either a copy of their, you know, DC ID, with that same address on it, or a lease, utility bill.
0: Right. That sounds very similar to what you have to provide to get a DC license. If you're, if you have a, if you previously have a out state license, which I had to do. But if you have to prove your residency every six months, and you have to have someone that can verify that. Does that? Does is there anything on that proof of residency form for re- for renewing ADAP? Mention anything about ADAP? or anything about HIV? Because I'm just wondering about like breach of privacy for these individuals.
1: Yeah, so that that is a good part um, because like in the whole application, the initial application for ADAP, it does give people the option to um, receive mail at the address that they're listing. Um, so that's a yes or no. And also um, if they list their phone number and or email um, to select the option of receiving you know voicemails Um, at those, you know, like at that phone number or, you know, receiving like email um, notifications. So there is always the option of saying, no, I don't want to receive, you know, like the renewal packet, the six month renewal packet at Mm -hmm. this address, please send it to maybe like another mailing address or just like not receiving any paper communication at all.
0: Okay. And so when you have clients who are, experiencing housing instability or their income can't be traced for one reason or another like they're doing gigs or they're doing survival based work that may be criminalized such as sex work or they have they don't have residency or citizenship status like how do you help them navigate that so the good
1: thing about adap is that you don't have to have any sort of like you don't have to prove citizenship okay um there is a question about you know like your social security number they do ask that but you can always leave that one blank um or just put na um that is not a requirement um wow. yeah it's great <laughs> uh, yeah it <that> is <laughs> but the other thing too is that um in terms of like proving the income um i mean unless they have like pay stubs or you know like tax documents. Essentially, like anything tied to, you know, maybe their social security number. Um, if they are like doing gigs or like cash-based um, work, we can do what's called a cash income form. Um, okay. So they, yeah, they do have forms that the person can essentially attest that. Okay, you know, right now I'm not receiving any pay stubs or you know, like anything, any sort of like um, document that. ADAP usually accepts that they would essentially attest, okay, I am maybe like a babysitter and I receive like $300 maybe every week and therefore, you know, like $1,200 a month Mm -hmm. usually. And they would put down, you know, like how many days in a month that they work and then the best contact info, just sign off and then have, you know, like the person. So usually me who is signing up with them Mm -hmm. sign off as well.
0: Okay, so they don't have to, they don't have to they don't require that the contact person be their employer or whoever gets their gigs. Cause again, yeah, I was worried about breach of privacy. <laughs> Danny for Danny for now's giving big oh, nods.
2: Yes, yes. big <laughs> nods.
0: <laughs> okay, so um, that sounds like that was pretty comprehensive uh, telling of how to navigate uh, or one way to navigate this if you don't qualify for DC Medicaid. So if, you're, if you have been diagnosed with HIV and you do call, qualify for DC Medicaid, what does that process look like for enrolling in care and treatment?
1: Um, yeah, so the good thing about like DC Medicaid, once you're approved, then, you know, like PrEP and HIV medication is covered in full. Um, so essentially, you know, just be cognizant of, you know, like when that is actually approved. Um, because D.C. Medicaid does have up to 45 days to give some sort of answer about the application that was submitted.
0: So what can be done within that
1: 45-day period? Essentially, um, if it is for PrEP, going through the manufacturer, so that would be Gilead, and requesting, you know, either that 30-day, like, emergency access or, you know, that full year, um, you know, longer Access. Um, And so that would be filling out an application, you know, either through their website, giving them a call. They have a form online also can fax that in. Um, And that's like similar questions, um, which is on the D.C. Medicaid application, demographic info. Um, Again, similarly to the ADAP application, there is a question for Social Security number, but it's not required.
0: Okay. And do you know what goes into their decision-making on whether or not to grant someone that medication access?
1: Yeah. So for the what's called patient assistance program, PAP, mm-hmm. um, what's taken into consideration um, the annual household income um, and like if this person is eligible for Insurance. So usually we tend to do this for people who are like uninsured or underinsured. Okay. Um, the other thing obviously is like, you know, like their residence. So like where, you know, if their ID or whatever, like proof of um, address matches up with what's listed in the application. Um, they do not ask for, you know, like labs. Um, or anything to prove that you know, like this person um, has gone, you know, to the doctor recently. They do ask for their primary care provider to sign off on a form stating that this person is receiving care.
0: So, what if they don't have a primary care provider?
1: We try to get them connected to one.
0: Okay. So, even if it's just is that on the condition that they meet with that primary care provider before they get prep, or just that they can say they have one.
1: Um, if they have, you know, like a provider and are able to bring this form in and have that signed, you know, again, all that's needed is that signature. Mm -hmm. Um, and if they're like looking for a provider, we can connect them to resources. So somewhere that does provide that initial, um, visit outside of the insurance so like they can do like a sliding scale or you know like completely like not go through the insurance at all and you know like might be zero cost okay. so you know there are local resources we can connect the person to so that they can get that essentially signature from a doctor to complete the application
0: okay and I know that depending on the provider they may like depending on the provider I don't know if it's for Gilead for like the emergency Um, PrEP if they think that you're not part of a demographic that's higher risk if they will deny you that medication.
1: No? I am shaking my head no. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: because I I and others test to have encountered providers who are just like, well, you know, you're not a man who's having sex with men. You're not dating someone who's positive. Like, you're, you don't, like, someone who doesn't fit the stereotypical higher risk Mm. they will find, use as reason to not give someone PrEP. So I didn't know if that's what you come across in your line of work or place of work or with Gilead.
1: Um, In terms of like the actual application, they only ask for, I think, sex. Like, so gender assigned at birth, Mm -hmm. but they don't ask for sexual orientation or any of that like demographic info. Go
0: Gilead. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, But I will say like, I do have a lot of, you know, people who come in, um, you know, like having questions about PrEP or like interested in PrEP who, you know, like, again, like have heard like through the community, maybe friends, um, other people who think that, you know, like PrEP is only for, you know, like men having sex with men, Mm -hmm. question mark.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, what do they define as man in this case? Danny Danny, for now. I I am nodding.
1: Yeah, I think the other thing, too, is that, um, you know, like within the LGBTQ plus community, there are a lot of politics around access to certain things. So, you know, thinking that cis gay men um, are the only ones who are HIV positive and or uh, would be the only ones who are interested in PrEP, which Mm is the furthest from the truth. Yeah. And, again, I guess, like, sort of on the flip side would be um, cis lesbians thinking, oh, I don't have to worry about that. That's, you know, like a gay man thing.
0: Lesbians. Lesbians. Come on.
1: (laughs) But, I mean, it's one thing where, I guess, if you think about it in the grand scheme of things, if everyone was on PrEP,
0: then... We would eventually not need, to, uh, not need to worry about transmission, yeah. Um, yeah, and like just what you mentioned with cis women and lesbians, I have encountered that, too. It's like anyone who has a vulva and only has sex with other people who have vulvas, I've heard the assumption that they're not going to catch any STIs because it's only a dick and vagina thing that happens or a dick and butthole thing that happens. It's like, no, you can... Still, catch STIs or oral sex or through sharing toys or like we don't know your other your other health habits. Like, do you inject drugs? Do you use snort drugs? Do you do anything that can actually exchange fluids? Like, uh, I'm of the personal belief that anyone who feels they can benefit from prep should be able to have prep. Yeah,
1: and I think this is just my opinion, but you know if everyone was on PrEP, then everyone would benefit.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) It's almost like, I don't know if you've heard, but um, there are actually like talks of an HIV vaccine. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, like I have been talking with other friends who um, have family members that are anti-vaxxers. Not to go into all of that, but essentially like when a whole population has the vaccine, then that's generally better for everyone.
0: Herd immunity, folks. Herd immunity. I mean, we almost eliminated me- measles. Almost. 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 Now look look at us.
1: So theoretically, we could eliminate HIV.
0: So my, <laughs> it's it's like a hodgepodge of like different things, not just related to PrEP, but related to treatment. Who... Has easier access to resources. Shit, you already know from your job better than I do. <laughs> um, but so it sounds like, and like, I, like I keep hearing that Gilead provides like a lot of assistance for people who want to be on PrEP or people who need HIV treatment and can't afford it. I'm wondering, what does Gilead get out of this?
1: I mean, in however long, I have been completing applications with people. I haven't seen or heard any explicit, like, you know, like, thank you for submitting this application. This is what we get out of it. That has never come up at all. Any fine print? I mean, the other thing, too, is that when someone is going through, like, the emotional crisis of not having access to something... That is really vital to them. Mm-hmm. You know, the last thing that's on their mind is what is Gilead getting out of this? Of or, course. You know, like, what is this other party benefiting? Or, you know, they're obviously more concerned about, you know, their own health, their own life, and, you know, like how they can, you know, either get back on track with their medication or, you know, just like continue living their lives.
0: And mm-hmm. so. I'm, I'm just, I'm curious, since Gilead does provide these three services, as you mentioned, that, you know, people under duress who need these services are not going to think about that. I keep thinking about privacy or access to information. So does Gilead get access to certain information in exchange for this? Or like is there any... I, I, I only ask you because I know of many programs where to access the service, you sign away you know, your demographic and health data to be used in any research that they want. I, did, I don't know if Gilead has a similar thing or if you've encountered programs that do similar things.
1: Um, from what I've seen, I haven't heard that it's like the information is explicitly used um, for research purposes. Okay. Um, you know, I do know, like every time I call in, um, there will be like an automated recording saying, you know, like, oh, this interaction will be recorded for, you know, training purposes. Um, but I mean, I can't help but think that, you know, however many applications are being submitted every month and every year um, you know, with all this demographic information of people's addresses, phone numbers, emails, um, et cetera, are, you know, they're, they're at least being collected. They're being gathered. Um, and I know that on one portion of the application, it's like towards the very end yeah. um, where the person signs off saying, OK, you know, like, great. I completed the application, signing off, dating, let's send it out. There's actually a checkbox um, that asks a person if they would like to receive, you know, like email notifications or essentially just like promotional material um, or any sort of like, you know, continued communication that's not explicitly about the application itself or, you know, like receiving this medication, essentially like, I don't know, advertisements, question mark. Okay. Um from the manufacturer. And um I will purposefully like uncheck that usually. Um and you know, like ask the person like, do you want to get um, email notifications um about essentially like advertisements is how I understand like promotional materials is was listed mm-hmm. in the actual application. Most people say no. Okay. Um, but it is like right next to that like signature and so most people like it. the the box is right there and has like yes and then like a bunch of like you know the whole explanation in small print so most people will just like check check whatever right you know they're just going through and like okay like i need my medication check 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 let's right. just go Right.
0: so i uh, like i just asked because uh, i know many times in healthcare in general but especially when it comes to people who have HIV or seeking prevention services, like privacy is very important. So I was just asking because I didn't know if some of these programs come with a condition that data from your care or from your demographics is up for free use by the manufacturer that's providing these medications. Um, so that sounds like, no, that's not
1: the case. It's not explicitly clear, I'll say that.
0: Okay, so that's I guess that's up for individuals seek out these services to just be cognizant of
1: yeah definitely yeah. read the fine print but also
0: you need you need the stuff so get the stuff <laughs> yeah
1: do what you need to do for your body
0: mm-hmm. yeah i just i i i i know it's like not a weird thing to bring up but yes it's not highest priority but there are there are individuals in circumstances and in places where, if their status were to be known, it would be detrimental to their health and to their lives. And so, I feel like that's how it's been expressed to me to people I've worked with who live of HIV. That's been a huge concern of theirs. Um, but, and that brings to question how is that privacy managed where you work? Like, are you in a setting where you can have private conversations with clients, or is it one of those where it's just like, many cubicles in a row where like people can kind of overhear like.
1: Um, yeah, so we definitely, you know, have the sound makers, it's a private office, the door is closed, um, things like that. We, we definitely understand that, you know, especially within that office, there are a lot of, um, you know, personal information that is being shared. Um, and people tend to be aware of that. So, um, They try not to, you know, like knock on the door or, you know, like interrupt whatever's happening. Um, And essentially, I would say we try to put it into the client's um, hands. So sometimes um, if people are willing to essentially like share their whole story and, you know, like what's going on this month specifically and... You know, like, why they need a certain kind of assistance, they might share that when the door is closed, but they might also choose to share that before they even get to the uh-huh. office.
0: Okay. I, I well, if that's at their own discretion, that's their own discretion. Um, I'm curious, how often does that happen when clients just kind of unburden themselves or just like, I guess, spill everything that's going on in their lives? Is that a common thing clients do, or?
1: Um, I would say, like, my distinction is between, like, when they do it inside the office, when, you know, we already have established that, you know, okay, the door's locked, there's, like, a sound maker, you know, like, some sort of privacy, Mm -hmm. more than being in an elevator or um, in a waiting room. Um, It is, I would say, more rare that someone is willing to share, you know, their information, however detailed that may be in a waiting room. Um, But 100%, you know, when people, um, I guess, like, feel comfortable and um, are already being asked, like, certain demographic um, questions, sometimes, very often, they will sort of, like, unload um, their current situation. So um, definitely trauma stories, definitely, um, stories to essentially like explain, um, why they're in the situation that they're in today. And, um, I think it's, you know, for themselves because I mean, just meeting me for the first time, they wouldn't know that, you know, like, I don't have any judgments about, you know, like what brought them to whatever situation that they're in. Um, And I'm very used to hearing, you know, certain stories Mm -hmm. and especially trauma stories. Um, So for me, it's a regular, you know, everyday thing. But for them, you know, this might be the first time they're talking to someone about their specific situation in a month. Or in a year and they might not have um, a support system they might not have friends that they regularly go to and can talk to about you know really hard things that are happening in their life mm-hmm. um, so they might want to tell me all about it and unfortunately I fortunately unfortunately I'm not their therapist um, so there's only so much that I can assist with
0: right um, and that that brings up a follow-up question: How does hearing all these stories of trauma affect you? A
1: lot. Um, I have been through, you know, my own trauma. Um, just growing up, being a human, things happen, mm-hmm. and I think certain trauma stories affect me more, or I notice their effect more than others. You know, like some that just sort of hit
0: home. <laughs> yep.
1: Um, but then there are others where, you know, excuse me, it's just so far out of, you know, what I regularly hear and something that is a genuine shock, um, to me. And of course I want to, you know, respect that person and not, you know, react in a way in which they feel like they have to take care of me or, you know, like now I'm, Oh my God, I can't believe that happened to you, and they're just reassuring me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't really want to be that person.
0: People do that too often already.
1: Yeah, so I try to, you know, just nod and, you know, generally not react to,, um, I don't know, like negatively. Um, you know, like not show like too much, um, I guess emotion, I don't know, but like sort of give them the space where they can feel like open to talk about whatever it is that's going on in their life in a way that's not, you know, like shaming them or, you know, like making them feel like, oh, like, why is this happening to you? And essentially making them feel worse about, you know, like whatever hard thing that they're going through.
0: So basically making them feel heard.
1: Yeah, that's a big part of it.
0: And that's I know in heart reduction training, that's something that's emphasized, like that active listening and how so many people, even with the best of intentions, their how they listen is just to listen for opening for them to respond. And we see that among care providers all the time. Um, I, like, I think we've both experienced that where people ask us to unburn ourselves, but then they do it with, they follow up with a judgment or they want to provide a solution to everything. And I know personally, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, according to your experience or experience of your clients, but when someone automatically offers a solution, it feels like, okay, everything I've done is inadequate or I haven't. I haven't done enough to try to remedy my situation or yeah. So yeah, I do end up feeling worse. Like, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely try not to do that. Try not to be the person to say, Oh, well you did this, but you had to do that instead. Like I don't think that that's supportive or helpful um, for that person. And, you know, like, of course, I can give, you know, like advice and different resources. Uh, But I think framing it in a sense of, oh, like, so you, you know, you tried this and this. um, And like, here are other resources that might also help. Um, And, you know, like, maybe if those don't work out, here are even more resources, because I think it's always helpful to have more resources than less. And... Leaving it up to that person to decide, okay, you know, like let me reach out to this and this center, let me, you know, like go into that program. And having a whole list, especially within the LGBTQ plus community, yes, they're able to filter out and say, Hmm, I don't think that one's the best fit, or you know, like, yeah, there were a couple places that were nice, but you know, my favorite was so and so, right? Um, giving them that autonomy. And I think a lot of the time people come in feeling like helpless or, Mm -hmm. you know, like their life is spiraling in a certain direction and they don't know how to get it back on track. And, um, you know, they just want more control over their situation, over their life and giving them those resources and essentially like saying, you know, like, thank you for coming in. Like, thank you for doing all that you had to do. To seek out this help. And, you know, like if you need more help or if you need, you know, a different kind of assistance that I'm not able to provide, here are additional resources and you can continue to, you know, like build your own autonomy and, you know, take charge of your life by reaching out to certain people.
0: That sounds very on point of what we all need (laughs) and what we can all. That sounds like a model of how we should all be responding to people's struggles. And I definitely, I think it's great that y'all are practicing that at your place of work. And I definitely think it's comforting that I'm starting to see, or we are starting to see more people practicing that. We still have a long way to go, but I can only imagine if your clientele, if they are dealing with a recent diagnosis or if they're dealing with trying to navigate through this clusterfuck of a healthcare system just to maintain health, that yeah, that becomes very overwhelming, and that you know, many encounters they have just add to that spiral, sense of spiraling out of control. So that's great that you and your colleagues do practice that active listening and just to be there for helping them feel heard. I definitely I you and I have discussed before. Um, I'm sure it can take a toll on you and your colleagues sometime. Is there anything you do to, I guess, decompress or help yourself to manage that stress after hearing all these trauma stories? Yeah, I think,
1: again, the other part is it's sort of a juggling act because um, I might not have time to decompress a really heavy situation um, because there's someone else that's, you know, waiting for the same assistance. Um, but whenever I do get the chance, I try to usually meditate. Um, I have like a pretty, you know, like short list of meditations that are helpful and, you know, whether that be 10 minutes, 20 minutes, however long I have just, um, using that time to recenter and, you know, like I tend to be someone who dissociates a lot and, like taking that time to ground myself in my body is super helpful. And, um, you know, like if I don't have that time, I am also someone who snacks a lot. (laughs) So like, you know, for me, like I bring in my little like coconut juice or like a little mango, you know, spices. So having, you know, like, okay, you know, just got through that interaction you know, going to have a mango slice and like take a couple breaths and let's see what this other person is here for.
0: Right on. Um, uh, that sound like, that sound like they've been helpful, helpful to you so far. I stumbling over my words, but <laughs> it sounds like they've been helpful for you so far. Um, and so I kind of want to take this back. We mentioned uh, a bit, we mentioned, we talked earlier about, um, I guess, financial and coverage barriers that your clients experience. Mm -hmm. What are some other barriers that you have uh, come across with clients who, you know, have been diagnosed but are can't get treatment or they're having a hard time adhering to treatment or clients who want PrEP, but are having trouble getting or staying on PrEP or clients who could benefit from PrEP, but are not, or not having like adverse reactions to the mention of PrEP. Like what are some Mm -hmm. other, I guess, more, social, cultural, personal barriers you've noticed among clients?
1: Wow, yeah, that's a lot. Um, (laughs) I think that, you know, taking this approach of intersectionality and knowing that, you know, people do have access to certain things um, that others don't as easily do.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um... And taking that wholeheartedly into consideration when asking, you know, like really tough questions. Um, some people might not find um, what is your current address. That might be a really, you know, like mundane, yep. not at all difficult question for some people, but for others that might be honestly be a trigger and, you know, have them go into, um, a retelling of how they recently lost their housing or how they are looking for housing and, you know, like what their recent, you know, housing struggle has been. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely like housing insecurity is one of them, um, because it does affect every single application.
0: Oh, absolutely. I, and definitely we come we have, We have clients that we uh, see at tent encampments where during DC's fucking biweekly cleanups, quote, quote, many lose their items such as medications, their IDs. It's like, and those are things that they need to survive. (laughs) It's like we treat people with housing stability, like shit in a city. And it, like you said, it does interfere with their health. Sorry. That just like right. That really resonated with me. And like, are similar experiences with like some clients um are some other barriers you have noticed
1: housing instability um definitely immigration status that has been something that's i guess been in the news a lot and a lot of people have you know come in even more um anxious and afraid and really worried Mm -hmm. um because of recent legislature Um, especially around the whole public charge rule. Uh. (laughs) And, um, you know, luckily we are able to reassure people and say that, look, the application that we're, you know, currently doing will not affect that um, in any way. And, you know, like I printed a list of, you know, applications that will not affect um, you know, someone being charged with this public charge rule and, you know, applying for Medicaid is one of them. That will not affect their eligibility. So, you know, having that and highlighting that and letting people know is super helpful. And um, so that's so that's immigration status, um, housing, sexual orientation, gender identity is something that comes up
0: And so you made a mention earlier about identity politics. So I feel like this cross cuts with that. Do you want to delve into that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there are definitely like people from certain communities that hear more Mm -hmm. about the availability of resources than others. (laughs) Yep. And they are, you know, like even in certain, you know, like HIV prevention commercials, you tend to see more, you know, cis gay men um, than, you know, for example, lesbians. Um, and I guess we just latched on to this example. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I definitely think that, like, gender minorities, by not seeing this representation and not having people, you know, in their communities and people in their lives telling them, oh, hey, you know, like, have you been tested for HIV? And having that be a reoccurring conversation, Mm -hmm. definitely, you know, like out of sight, out of mind, right? They're not thinking about it. They're not thinking about how, you know, PrEP might help them and how, you know, even if they're not with a partner who is, you know, HIV positive or, you know, in any sort of like quote unquote at risk situation, being on PrEP is still helpful.
0: Mm hmm. And do you feel that there are any like personal barriers to people who are seeking or on HIV treatment or seeking or on PrEP? Like any like personal struggles that you see constantly come up with clients?
1: I think something that's definitely on my radar more is I guess like mental health and how that affects um, people being able to access what they need. Mm-hmm. Because I guess, you know, step by step, if you think about, you know, okay, like I'm going through a depressive episode, for example, and I don't want to get out of bed. And it's really hard for me to even, you know, go out in public and, you know, like get food or, you know, pick up my medications or, you know, just like doing daily tasks. So when it's hard for you to just get out of the house, Um, imagine how much harder it must be to, you know, let's say you finally made it out of the house and you're going to the pharmacy to pick up your prep or pick up your medication and lo and behold, um, your benefits have terminated or, you know, like you actually haven't had benefits in several months and now have to complete like a whole brand new application and this opens up like a whole like pandora's box of emotions and now you know like finding the resources to help you get connected back into health insurance and you know like even you know wanting to go down once you find the resources wanting to go down to that office and opening up and, like, completing those applications and, like, knowing that those applications are going to bring up those same emotions, it's, you know, it's cyclical. And um, I have definitely met with people who have, you know, been on medication, been receiving care, and, you know, for whatever reason, have not received that care for maybe a couple months, maybe a couple years. And, you know, like, it could be due to, you know, their housing, immigration, whatever. Um, But I've met with definitely people who, you know, like their, you know, like mental health has severely affected their ability to advocate for themselves.
0: And so what do you and your colleagues try to do to uh, navigate those situations when you have a client that's dealing with like adverse mental health and they just it's too much to navigate this stuff because like many people like i've we have noticed that many people like to talk lightly of depression but Mm. depressive episodes from a personal stance and many have echoed this is that it literally makes your limbs feel like you can't move them it makes it feel like your eyes or eyelids are too heavy to open. And so just getting out of bed alone is an incredible feat. But then to navigate like losing coverage or trying to get coverage again, I can imagine is incredible, incredibly a difficult thing for clients to navigate and for you and your colleagues to help them navigate. So if they do have a accompanying adverse mental health issues, um, Issues. What do y'all do? Do you try to refer them to um, mental health professionals on site or elsewhere? What do you do? I
1: again, it's all like situational. You know, Mm -hmm. every every body is different. Right. Each person, each situation um, is going to bring up different things, and so you know, maybe one person is really in need of, you know, like mental health intervention right there. And they just need to, you know, like check in with someone and Mm -hmm. have a professional who can talk them through whatever's going on in that moment. Um, Sometimes they're not ready for that. And they, you know, again, like it might just be too raw and they don't want to talk about it. But having that, you know, like giving them a referral or, you know, some sort of resource to, okay, you know, like you're not, feeling it today, um, maybe later on you will decide, Hey, like, I do want to talk to someone about this. And I, I am in a place where, you know, like this feels comfortable and I, I need to just get this off my chest. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, or even, you know, just like being that person for, you know, however, you know, five, 10 minutes listening to what's going on right there. And you know, nodding along and saying, Absolutely, that makes a lot of sense. Um Validation's important, y'all. <laughs> yeah, just like having someone, you know, who can nod along and say, like, yeah, that sounds hard. Um, then they'll, you know, feel like can I curse on the show?
0: Oh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I, but... cur- I, cur- I curse all the time on the show, i be kidding. <laughs> Fuck, shit, cunt. There
1: you go. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, definitely having the space to say, fuck, that was hard.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm having a really shitty time. Um, but then they're able to, you know, just, like, continue on and say, okay, you know, I want to focus on, you know, whatever application it is we're doing right now.
0: Okay. I. I'll hand to you You and your colleagues deal with a lot, <laughs> and that's that's something in like community health I've noticed a lot. Like you know, not like community health workers, navigators. Like actually, actually, I forgot to ask, what is your like actual title? Like, or are you comfortable disclosing that, or what would be a similar title?
1: Um, that's actually really interesting. Um, I run into that every day, but. Essentially, like assisting people with public
0: benefits, okay. Or is a navigator like a, a yeah, coventar? navigator. Okay, yeah. now I see that a lot. It's like care navigator, treatment navigator, mm-hmm. or, like community health worker, peer advocate, peer uh worker. It's like, yes, case they, manager, sometimes, case manager. Yeah,
1: there we wear a lot of different hats <laughs> and um. Honestly, like depending on who I'm talking to, or you know, like whatever needs to get done, I'll be like, okay, sure. Today I'm I'm the case manager. That's fine.
0: I mean, well, you do case management, but <laughs> technically, yeah. Um, but I have noticed that these are positions that are actually essential for linking people to health. They're often underpaid <laughs> positions, and Danny for now is nodding their head. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I. Do wish that your work was more valued because y'all are essential for helping people basically live <laughs> and it's yeah so many people don't see healthcare outside of like the physician patient or nurse patient relationship when there's so many players it's like because of you these clients are able to get a physician in the first place because of you they mm-hmm. were able to get treatment in the first place or get, pre- get prep in the first place. So, I mean, just acknowledging y'all have hard work. Y'all do very hard but necessary work. And that brings me to the question about like provider and, or like case manager type provider and client relationships. And I bring this up because yesterday was uh, International Overdose Awareness Day And HIPS did host an Overdose Awareness Day event in which we had a panel. Uh, One of them was a physician from Where You Work, which where we will not mention. (laughs) And there's many care providers, both clinical and non-clinical community advocates talking about um, like provider, community, and individual relationships and how not working with people engaged in drug use, who, in communities adversely affected by overdose, how those relationships are essential to generate tangible change, like a tangible uh, change for the better. And a couple advocates on the panel were talking about how outreach and interactions need to actually be sincere and the importance of trust building. When so many people who do outreach often do it for the wrong reason, or it comes, they come across or actually do come with an agenda behind outreach behind reaching out to people rather than just actively listening so I was wondering if you had any anything to say about the your your relationship with clients like how you and your colleagues who do like this care navigation what you do to foster that trust and like just mitigate all of that
1: um yeah I mean like Obviously, can only speak from my personal experience. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing, too, is, like, I don't typically see how my colleagues um, Uh, go through their interactions because I'm having my own. That's fair. One second. Yeah, but um, in terms of my patient interactions, I will say that this is the ideal. I try to bring, you know, some sort of awareness um, about, you know, whatever the person is telling me about and definitely like every day trying to humble myself and actively recognize my privilege um and that's been like a whole process because um you know like as a trans person of color um you know like a lot of people see me and think that i don't have a lot of privilege and i've gone through a lot of um I don't know, situations where people are like, oh, poor you, poor thing. Uh, yeah, it's exhausting. But, um,
0: you so know... They're, like they're assuming lack of privilege?
1: Yeah. Okay. And, you know, like, when I'm, you know, like, behind the computer, I'm definitely the person who has the privilege. And, you know, like, especially talking with people who have very different life experiences, you know, I have to check that. And I have to realize, like, You know, at the end of the day, I still have a place to sleep. I still have food security or, you know, whatever else that person is talking to me about. And um, really humbling myself and realizing that this person's experience is valid Mm -hmm. and it's valid for them to feel a certain type of way, you know, for me to you know complete this application with them um and you know like understanding how I have felt when you know like a cis white person has told me oh like you need to do this you have to do that you know eat this don't yeah exactly the whole you know go fuck yourself
0: I am giving a finger (laughs) (laughs)
1: mentality um so like I think trying to analyze Like, my feelings around, you know, those kind of situations and how I would have liked to be treated um, when I needed assistance from someone um, definitely is something I try to work on. Um, Obviously, I'm human, so, you know, whatever shit happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But realizing, like, hey, it's about this person. So, like, check your shit at the door, listen to what's happening.
0: Right on. Um, And so you gave a lot of great essential information, but for listeners or uh, friends of listeners who have been diagnosed with HIV and are seeking treatment or someone who wants to be on PrEP, what steps can they take to connect to resources to get the processes that you uh, explained earlier started?
1: I would say, I mean, definitely step one is getting tested. Um, there are plenty of like mobile sites and, you know, just like community organizations that do, you know, like the quick little, you know, finger prick testing and, um, you know, that might take a matter of minutes. So, you know, going ahead and taking advantage of those resources,
0: uh, some links to which we'll provide in the episode description.
1: And then, you know, like, of course, like, um, seeing your primary care provider or looking for one um, again, you know, like depending on if you have insurance or if you need a connection to insurance, um, you know, looking for who might be able to help you, like what those first steps might be. Um, there are what are called like a sister organizations mm-hmm. all around the city. Um, so, you know, just like taking a look into that. Um, if you, if that's the first step you need to take.
0: Again, we'll provide links to several of those within the city. Um, HIPS is one of them that can help with that navigation and HIPS is also a place where you can be tested for HIV, Hep C, and put through PrEP navigation. Just one of many resources in the city that I know about personally um, so is what should people who are going through this process be positive? like what, what advice would you give them to help them prepare for this process or for any, I guess, sidelines they may encounter?
1: I mean, I guess like anything, um, I don't know, be prepared for um, a lot of questions, you know, like, at least for the application process, there's going to be, you know, a verification of demographic info. Um, If you are trying to access prep or, you know, like other medication assistance, um, usually verification of income or state residency is going to be requested. Um, so, you know, like knowing if that might be available to you or, you know, like how that whole process would work. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, just, um, you know, being ready to ask for help and, you know, listen to what resources might be the most helpful I don't know the next
0: steps okay fair enough thanks um I I was actually really excited to talk about this when you approached me about it because it needs to be talked about um yeah thanks thanks very much for coming um for anyone who's listening who thinks they can benefit from these kind of services will be providing links to uh, organizations that do testing and do care navigation within the DC area. Um, I'll also provide links to a couple other states or like national databases where you can help navigate help navigate on your own time, but we recognize that our healthcare system is fragmented, it's complicated, it's unfair, it's oppressive, and it doesn't function how it should, and that's where people like Danny come in to try to make it a little less complicated for you. So I definitely recommend getting in touch with navigators such as Danny because they are essential to the health of so many. Um, Anything anything else you want to uh, talk about before we wrap up, Danny?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess the... um, What I've gotten out of everything, my whole experience is... um, advocate for yourself um, do whatever you need to do for your body and um, you know like you know yourself the best um, so listen to listen to what your body's telling you um, get the resources that you need to get in touch with and um, you know keep living your life.
0: Thank you Danny and just a reminder to everyone you are valid you are loved you deserve care and you deserve love So I'm Lizzie. I'm Danny and you just listen to sex intersectional <laughs>